The Athletic. Lauren Hill. So difficult to stop. Oh! Also, hold it in the Sahara. Also, Kanten da. Fahren in the Sahara. Miedema. Miedema van de Donkers mee. Miedema. Goal, 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 goal. Teodoro. And welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast Euros Edition. Coming up, the Netherlands roared into action. Sweden, the Dutch hopes. Portugal won't settle for silver. It's Lindsay Hooper here, and joining me it's the Athletics Nancy Frostig. Hello, Nancy. Hi. And Arsenal Oracle Tim Stillman. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Thanks for having me back. Very welcome, uh, both of you. And Tim, it doesn't surprise me at all that we get you on on the time that Viv Miedemar gets a player of the match performance. Yeah, that's a surprise, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not a surprise at all. Today was the big one, Netherlands, Sweden. There were huge crowds in Sheffield. Seas of orange and Sweden fans singing. Those sounds from the Athletics' Flo Lloyd-Hughes, who was in amongst the Dutch fans for a piece coming out very soon. Tim, do you think that it lived up to the expectations in terms of occasion? I think it did, actually. I think maybe the game was a little bit slow to get going. And when you've got two of the favourites playing each other so early as well, you know, one of, one of the games where you look at and think this could be a final, actually, um, you kind of got the sense in the first 15 minutes of the teams feeling each other out. But I thought it was a really, really fascinating game. And um, cliche alert, a real game of two halves as well. In fact, both games were today. Yeah, you say a game of two halves, which was right for both, as you as you mentioned. Also, a day where we had draws in both matches. These double days, it's the first time it's happened in the tournament that we've had that. Nancy, you were at Portugal versus Switzerland. Did you have a good afternoon as well then, watching that comeback from Portugal? Yeah, it was it was brilliant. I mean, you know, even before, before kick-off, talking about the noise, they had a steel drum band outside, there were loads of fans milling around and it was, you know, reassuring that they weren't all just here to visit the Morrisons over the road, they actually all made it into the ground and it was full and, and yeah, what a way to, to start. Uh, well, let's dive into the detail, starting with the other game first, Nancy, we'll come back to yours, Netherlands versus Sweden. No one's up there, easily beaten, chance here for Sweden, comes all the way through, and it's in, it's in the lead. Netherlands won, Sweden won. A nutmeg on the edge of the box from Sweden's Kosovare Aslani fed Jonna Andersson for the opening goal. But in the second half, Q Viv Miedemar, who created the opportunity that led to Jill Rod's equaliser for the Netherlands, it ended one all at Bramall Lane in Sheffield. I think we should start then with Jonna Andersson because she doesn't very often score goals, certainly at club level or major tournaments, uh, Tim. But up she popped after that audacious nutmeg from Aslani that, that created the chance. Yeah, yeah, it, it was a really, really nice goal. And and I did feel for, was it uh, Anouk Noven, um, who was yes. nutmeg? Yeah. And you just saw her soul leave her body <laughs> as it happened <laughs> and that resigned shrug. But yeah, and, and for Jonna Anderson as well, a, a bit of a forgotten player at Chelsea over the last year or so, really hasn't had a lot of minutes um, with Chelsea and, and kind of seems to be on the way out there. But, but her in particular on that left-hand side in the first half, 
I mean, it it was no surprise that the goal came from one of the wing backs because Netherlands in that first half just could not cope with that overload, particularly on the left-hand side and the areas that Aslani was picking up on on the kind of inside and Rolfo as well. It was it was devastating and really I think Sweden should have gone in at half time probably with a bit more than a one nil lead, which I think will be their main regret from this game. The overload didn't only cause them problems in terms of when they conceded. It was causing them problems with the the flight, the delivery of balls into the box. And that's when we had that huge clash, Nancy. We had uh, Captain Sari van Vendendal come out and you could see that she physically called for the ball. But of course, her two defenders were already on the charge and not going to relent. So she ended up wiping out both of her players and injuring her own shoulder in the process. It was just too much for her and she had to be substituted. Did you think that spelt danger for the Netherlands in the sense that they would go on and and be unable to get back into this because they just had so much go on so early? Yeah, you could see it was, you know, maybe shook them up for a little bit and and understandably so because that was quite a nasty tackle actually. I was surprised the referee didn't halt play quicker than than she did. And then obviously she tried to carry on for a little bit and then and then went down. So the the substitute that brought on in goal, she was excellent. I thought it was only a second cap, I think, from the Netherlands. Um, yeah. She was actually pretty solid after that point. So, you know, they might have stumbled on their new number one without sort of meaning to there. But yeah, you could see kind of maybe for a little bit it affected them. But after after half time, they, they were at it a lot better than the first half. I think that actually did Netherlands a bit of a favour. Sorry hasn't been in great form I don't think for quite a while but the other thing that happened when Anouk Nowen went off um, not that she was playing badly in and of herself but they had to move Dominic Janssen back to centre half where I think she's much much better and I actually think that in a in a way that helped Netherlands. Something that looked like it was going to be a problem, yeah, actually ended up sorting a few of the issues out. Subkeeper Daphne van Domselaar was who you were talking about there, Nancy, coming on, looking very promising one for the future. Jill Rod, we know what sort of player she is from watching her for many, many years. She will have loved the fact that she got on the end of that that chance and it, it just ended up trickling to her in a very fortunate way. But she has been asked to play a, a different role for the Netherlands. So to actually pop up with the goal was, was pretty surprising in the end, wasn't it? Yeah, just another one of the changes Netherlands made, not in force this time, where Gilles Rule was playing more on the right in the first half. And I don't think that role suits her nearly as much. And then in the second half, she was much more central. It was Vivian Miedema who was drifting out wide. And that's exactly where the goal comes from. Miedema drifting wide, pulling that defence apart, and then Jules Rod moving into that space centrally. Just It just works so, so much better for Netherlands. So even though some of the enforced changes maybe helped them um, in an unintentional way, this one, Mark Parsons, I think, really got right in the second half. The thing with the best players and the best teams is it can be just one moment, just one thing that leads to a brilliant opportunity. And that turn from Viv Miedemar, I think it probably is what earned her as well uh, player of the match uh, because she, she managed out of nothing to create this absolute brilliant attack. Do you think that, that that intelligence from her and starting to seem a bit more unselfish as well in front of goal could be key to Netherlands getting something from this group. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, they're the type of team where, and, and I think they were saying it at half time on the on the broadcast actually, where you know they just needed to believe in themselves again. You know, realise we are the defending champions here, and and we can score from any situation. Um, and then they they went ahead and did exactly that. And so you know, 
Viv's the sort of player where she only needs half a chance and she'll make something wonderful happen. But this was obviously slightly deeper and she really sort of took the game by the scruff of the neck and, and made stuff happen in that second half, which was great. And I mean, that that finish, you know, from Jill Rod just to turn, there's so little space for her to turn and take that snapshot there. But the, the power and the accuracy she's got on that is sensational. So that just speaks to kind of the form that she's in and the enjoyment that she's clearly getting in that role. Should there be any question marks, Tim, about Sweden failing to protect that 1-0 lead they had? I think so, yeah, yeah. I think what's really, I know this has been said so many times, but what's so interesting about this tournament is there are six or seven favourites, but they've all got a bit of a flaw somewhere. And Sweden, one of those teams I've looked at and thought, well, one of the, I've, I've tipped them to win it. And one of the reasons is because I don't see that many weaknesses. But I think perhaps this was a bit of a weakness exposed in terms of, once Netherlands got to grips with attacking those areas behind the wing backs, I was disappointed because I really rate Peter Gerhardsen as a coach. I was disappointed there wasn't really a response to that. They did, there wasn't a response to Netherlands' response, which really surprised me. And I think other teams will look at that in the tournament and say that they've almost been given a blueprint now for how you can hurt Sweden. Yeah, I don't think we've really seen that yet in, in many of the matches where we've had blow for blow for blow. It's that third blow that we haven't really witnessed yet. And one of the things that, that I did identify as well was that lack of ability to take on players from Sweden in the second half. They were doing it for fun in the first half. But that makeshift, I'm going to call it a makeshift defence for Netherlands because it wasn't intentional, was it? it? It ended up being their back four. But as soon as that came into play, Sweden stopped the one-on-ones. And I don't know whether you thought that there was, there was something that they could have done maybe with, with deliveries into box using the wings more. Definitely. And and Sweden brought on uh, Kanarid. Um, I've probably pronounced that horribly. <laughs> um, and she made... We're all doing that from time to time, Tim, don't worry. <laughs> and she, she made a huge impact when she came on against Brazil in one of the warm-up games. And she's that really direct one-on-one style winger, um, someone who I think is going to be in the WSL next season by the sounds of it. But even And, and then they brought on Stina Blackstinius as well, someone who's really capable of attacking those wide deliveries, but you're right, Sweden, they, they still, when they brought those players on, I thought, ah, here we go. Here's the third chapter of this game. Here's the response. But I agree. I don't think it quite materialised. Um, and I'm not, I'm not entirely sure why, I have to say. Sweden fans did get to see 20 minutes uh, of Blackstenius, though. Any underlying concerns with the injury reported coming into the, the tournament? As an Arsenal fan, yes, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because I don't like seeing my players play half fit because of the knock-on effect uh, into the season. Seen it before at the last year at the last Euros, Vivian Miedema came back with an injury and uh, really impacted the following season for her. But it, it sounds like one they just can't get rid of at the moment, and we have seen some injuries in these opening games as well. And I wonder a bit about that big gap between the end of the season and the beginning of the Euros, nearly two months. I'm no sports scientist or physio, but I do wonder a bit about that gap because we are seeing, we're we're seeing quite a lot of big injuries as well in these kind of opening games or just before the tournament starts. So it does make me wonder a little bit, but but I mean, yes, I am a bit worried about Stina, to be honest with you. Oh, well, I, I think your worries are probably confounded by a lot of other Sweden fans who who are wondering, are we going to see enough of her this tournament? We couldn't split these two nations on the night, Sweden and uh, and the Netherlands. As Gabby Logan signed off on the programme live on the BBC, they went Dutch 
thought that was clever. Jesse Parker Humphreys called this the battle of the best Euro songs. So we're going to try and divide them. Who do we think wins? We can play them to you. Here's Netherlands. And here's Sweden. So which one wins? Nancy, you go first. Oh, they both could be strong Eurovision entries, couldn't they? Um, I'll go for Sweden. I quite like the sound of that one. Tim? Yeah, oh, but see, this is where we're going to go Dutch. I'm going to go oh, Dutch. Oh, you're joking. I, I, I think, but I think it's because it's in English. Maybe I connected a little bit more with the lyrics, um, deep and fantastic as they are, whereas my grip on Swedish is is non-existent. So maybe, maybe if I had a better grip on Swedish, I'd be wowed by the lyrics of the Swedish entry. I'm going to be given casting vote then. I'm not going to go for either of them because this one wins it. Hand to the left, knee to the right. Ellen's up front, Millie's looking bright. They don't need introduction. Follow Serena's instruction. Hand to the left, knee to the right. Ellen's up front, Millie's looking bright. They don't need introduction. Follow Serena's instruction. Yes, this is our very own Euro song, which we're trying to get viral. We're certainly trying to get it in the stadium. So if you could both spread the word, that would be great. Yeah, I, I think that one wins it, doesn't it? Hands down. <laughs> yeah, Nancy, Nancy's nodding along there as well. Uh, well, uh, guess why the Netherlands wear orange? Do you know the answer to this, Tim, seeing as you've got more connections? The, 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 it's, it's something to do with, is it like an old Dutch monarch? Dutch something? king. Dutch yeah, king. Dutch yeah, king. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the... The country's very first king. Did you know this, Nancy, before I jump in? Uh, yeah. Oh, go on, go on. Oh, well, I forget. Mm, oh, not William or someone around you anyway. Yes. Yeah. You are. Willem, which is William, isn't it, in Dutch? Willem van Oranje, which means orange. That trip to the Amsterdam Oranje. Museum on holiday wasn't wasted. Yeah. <laughs> he, found, he founded the Netherlands, and that's why they wear Norwich. Don't say this isn't educational as well. To get the vibe from the stadium and the thoughts of the managers and players after the match, we spoke to Swedish journalist Frida Fagerlund, who was at the match. Frida, great to have you on. What was the assessment, first of all, from, from a Swedish point of view after the match, from the players and managers that you've spoken to? Because it, it felt like they were in the ascendancy, but Netherlands managed to get back into it, of course. Yeah, to be fair, they were slightly disappointed uh, with just one point. They felt like a, f- a few parts of the game was really, really good, while other parts weren't as good. They felt like it was a bit, was a bit stiff at times and maybe they took too many touches and um, yeah they were very disappointed that they let Netherlands in so to speak especially in the second half where they maybe performed slightly uh, yeah slightly less good compared to the first half so overall uh, yeah a disappointed uh, feeling from the the Swedish camp at the same time it's it's one point against the Netherlands and this was the toughest game in in the group stage so overall it's it's not too shabby any standout remarks or anything that has got you up at night now thinking about what you're going to do next <laughs> <laughs> I mean one thing was definitely the formation Mark Parsons even said that he was very, very surprised by how Sweden approached this game, playing with a, I guess it was almost like a three 
2-4-1, which is definitely not how they played against Brazil. And I think it really showed that they had a lot of respect for the Netherlands and especially Miedema, of course, and, and uh, other strong players. But I, I have to say, I mean, I, I do think that was probably the right choice. It would have been very scary to underestimate the Netherlands. And, and this, is, this is not the Euros final. And also, Sinaplexenius wasn't able to start this game. So with, with that in mind, it, it was probably the right thing to, to play uh, with a three at the back. But I don't think they would have done that had Stina been able to, to start this game. Up until Miedemar had that moment in the second half and then seemed to really come into her own and, and, and ended up getting player of the match, did you think that Rolfa was in with a good shout? Because I did. Yeah, she was very, very aggressive, wasn't she? Like she, she is an amazing player. She's so tall, quite intimidating. So she was very unlucky there in the second half when she managed to slip. And and uh, yeah, she said so herself. She she was she was one of the players that was probably like the most disappointed. And even when someone praised her, she said, "Well, did you actually think I was good?" So <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, yeah, you can really tell that that she has very very high standards for herself but when she's playing in a central role as she did today she doesn't get that much space and I think that's what frustrated her a bit especially in the second half so let's see how what role she has in in the other games such a highly anticipated match I always wonder with those ones because we don't get to see once the cameras go off if we're not there did the players hang around because after a draw you feel that perhaps neither of them were happy but were they still sharing pictures with the fans and, and bits like that it did. The goalkeeper, Hedvig Lindahl, she even gave her, her gloves away to a little boy that was very oh. happy. Yeah, it was very, very, very cute to see. So, uh, yeah, they, they, you, can, you can really tell that they appreciated all the fans coming here a lot. So, yeah, that was uh, definitely a highlight to, to take from this game as well. That was Swedish journalist Frida Fagelund. And to get the Netherlands view, we spoke to journalist Anne-Marie Potsma, who was at Bramall Lane as well. Anne-Marie, uh, great to have you on. You've taken in that match. You've taken in the post-match thoughts. First of all, the atmosphere. What was it like? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've seen part of the parade pre-game uh, and I saw a lot of the Swedish fans uh, uh, in town. So, yeah, it was really good. And in the stadium, it wasn't sold out, but actually that didn't really matter because, uh, yeah, great atmosphere, a lot of people. So what did the players and managers have to say afterwards? Well, I mean, the Dutch players, they they said it was uh, mentally tough the first half, um, losing two of your key players, like uh, the goalkeeper, Sadi, and then the centre-back, uh, Anik Nawa. And uh, Dominique Janssen, she said there was uh, like halftime. She she never needed a halftime more than today just to get uh, all the faces in the right direction uh, again. Um, and also Mark, he changed something tactically. So things did work out. How sad it must sound for, for losing Sadi and Anik now. Because, I mean, obviously, uh, yeah, that's really bad for for them. And I uh, I feel sorry for them. Yeah. So we have to see how, how they're doing first. When Mark Parsons was speaking about that tactical switch, what was it that he did? Did he did he reveal that? What he did was obviously, yeah, switching Daniele van der Donk and Roort. And I've spoken to Jill Roort and she said uh, she felt, yeah, instantly she felt more comfortable being in the middle because that's where, that's her position. Um, so she was 
happy with that. And uh, and she played closer to Miedema and she said, well, everyone knows we have this special connection with each other. And that's what you saw at the beginning of the second half. Uh, same goes for Dominique Janssen. Uh, it's because dropping out of Anignawa, so that was pretty sad. But she also said, I feel more comfortable in the middle. So those were a couple of things. And what you saw in the first half, half they had to get used to the power play of Sweden coming from behind. And, and Jill said that's something we needed uh, to get used to. And she let her player go a couple of times. And that was also causing the, the goal from Sweden. I think Sweden did a really good job on, on that uh, with the wing backs. And second half, yeah. putting Daniela van der Donk there made a difference. So, yeah. Did anyone interview this new young keeper that came in, Daphne van Domselaar? And what can you tell us about her? Because obviously the, the stage called and she delivered pretty much when she was asked. Yeah, I mean, we asked her, of course, I'm really nervous for coming in. And she said, well, I didn't have time to be nervous. <laughs> uh, for her, it only felt two seconds. I mean, uh, she threw a ball uh, with a teammate for like two, three times, and then she had to go uh, on the pitch. But as we know her, she's like, she's really young, but she's also confident uh, and, and she, she does what she needs to do. Uh, I, and Sadi told her uh, before she went on, she told her, like, be yourself, just do whatever, what you always do, uh, stay calm and enjoy yourself. Um, so that was, that was really kind of her. And, and when she came on, that, that's exactly what, what she did. Um, and remember, it's only her second match in the national team and it's on the European Championship and it's the first match on this Women's Euro. So it's incredible. And, and uh, we've all seen how talented she is and how fierce she looked, uh, like how, how strong she looks in the goal. And, and she was confident with catching every ball. So yeah, she made a really good impression. Thank you very much, Anne-Marie. Thank you. Netherlands journalist Anne-Marie Potsma there. Uh, speaking of big crowds, I spoke to Ellen White today about how England are dealing with all that noise. Tim, we know only too well from WSL, there are occasional matches where they play in the men's stadiums and they get more fans in. And we know the FA Cup final attracts a lot of fans as well. But they really aren't used to dealing with this noise. 68,000 at Old Trafford. We know that the Amex is sold out. St. Mary's is sold out. If they get to the final, Wembley will be absolutely heaving, probably another record. So I was asking about how they've been dealing with that. Do they have a team psychologist who talks to them about playing in front of bigger crowds that they're not used to? And um, What she told me was that they, they do have someone within the team, within the staff, and they have had some meetings about it and how to try and better communicate. But they're, they're relying on the experience that some of the players in the squad have in terms of of those giant crowds that they have played in front of. But I went on to ask about communicating. If they can't hear each other, then what do they do? Ellen said, if Serena wants to communicate it, it can travel along the units. It can travel along the team quite easily from player to player. There's a lot that goes into body language and stuff like that. Every player knowing their role inside out is really important as well. And then I asked, and you're not adverse to a note. And she said, I don't think I've ever had a note passed to me. Maybe up front, I don't get told as much, but maybe you never know. But on a serious note, both of you, this is a thing, isn't it? It's something that we don't think about, but if they can't get their messages verbally to each other, how do they? Is it, is it something that you've picked up on, Nancy, when you've been watching? Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because um, today at the game, actually, the Portugal manager, Francisco Neto, said actually in, in his uh, post-match press conference that 
he was grateful for the atmosphere, but in a way it did make communication a little bit difficult. And, and you know, there was much fewer fans here than there were at Old Trafford. So the noise is actually a, an interesting kind of problem, I suppose, that's going to hopefully become a bit more regular as we get these bigger crowds going forward. But um, I suppose, you know, they'll have been drilled and drilled on these formations. And by the sounds of it, you know, Serena Vigman's one of the most organised and sort of disciplined coaches you can get. So I'm sure they sort of know what they're meant to do. It's just when they've got to adapt if the game plan changes. So it will be interesting to see, yeah, how, how they negotiate that. And notes might be the way forward. But what you do with them afterwards, whether it's down the sock or someone eats it or whatever, that's that's another problem. Drives us journalists mad as well, doesn't it? What's in the note? What's in the note? And it probably just says push or press or or just one word. Tim, being such a, a big Arsenal fan as you are, do you think this is something where sharing information from men's sides to women's sides could could be really beneficial? Because we know that the men week in, week out have to deal with that. And whereas this is something that's more sporadic for the women at the moment. Yeah, I've I've asked a lot of players about this over the last few years. And a lot of them, yeah, say, look, we maybe not every week, but a lot of us have played in bigger stadiums and things like that. But interestingly, you know, Arsenal last season, for example, I don't know if you remember this in the cup final against Chelsea, Jonas Eidefell held up coloured cards from the dugout, basically as, as an indicator to his team about when Chelsea were shifting formation. And Arsenal held, um, actually did an open training session at Emirates Stadium. And one of the reasons Jonas said that he did that was because he wanted them, albeit in an empty stadium, but he wanted them to get the feel of a bigger stadium. And, and I know Arsenal, for example, are pushing to play. They're going to play six games at the Emirates next year. So I do think a lot of these players, and if this Euros has the impact that we all think and hope it will, this will become more regular. So I, I don't think it's going to be um, that much of a problem. Obviously, there is an adaption, particularly when it's, like you say, a little bit sporadic. But basically, I think it's going to become at the top level less and less sporadic. And I look at a lot of these England players, for example, and I think you've all played Wembley Cup finals. Most of them play for Arsenal, Manchester City, Chelsea. I, like I think they're probably used to it. Well, Nancy, you did mention that you thought noise was an issue at Portugal versus Switzerland. So let's get into that match. I did predict a screamer on last night's show in this one. And that's what we got. And the hit comes in. Oh, what a screamer. That is sensational. It was a 28-yarder, to be specific, if we're going to talk screamers, in the second minute from Cumberso. And Switzerland's Rael Kivitz scored another in the opening five minutes for a 2-0 lead. But in the second half, it was Portugal fighting back. They made it 2-2 at Lee Sports Village. They could have made it 3-2. They hit the post late on as well. But the goal's coming from Diana Gomez and Jessica Silva. So Nancy, we've established that that you were at that one. You were soaking in the atmosphere. What did you make of the manager's post-match comments and thoughts? Because you'll have stayed behind for those. Yeah, um, it was really interesting to hear from um, the Portugal manager. He said basically that at halftime, he told his players, you know, to play like Portugal and, and to find the sort of Portuguese soul, not worry too much about the tactics and other things, but the soul of the way they play, which I thought was a really interesting thing to pick up on because, you know, in the first half you could see 
the the technical stuff was great and and the ideas were there but just they weren't quite getting the execution of moving it between the lines and progressing the ball that they were getting cut out a lot and then in the second half everything just seemed to connect so whether that was the thing that sort of made it happen and then for Niels Nielsen he was just trying to sort of understand quite why Switzerland hadn't got it over the line and uh, he was sort of racking his brains and really was thinking quite hard when he was answering the questions about why he hadn't made changes sooner which was unusual because I feel like managers normally back themselves to know why but he was kind of really thinking before he answered the questions so maybe some reflection for him there but they just weren't quite getting the service into Ramona back when I don't think. Tim where did you see Portugal turning this game around? I mean Nancy mentioned there the quicker ball passing finding each other more but was there anything else at play? Yeah, I think so. So that definitely happened. But one of the the things um, I picked up data-wise that's really interesting is that Portugal generated uh, 1.77 XG from set pieces. They had some really, really clever set piece routines that I think really rattled Switzerland quite a lot because I think Switzerland, just those two early goals, put them into a comfort zone. But for Portugal to have those kind of imaginative uh, set piece routines, considering how they've come into this tournament where... They, were, they didn't know they were going to play until May. And so they've not had time. And I read uh, Jack Lang did a really great piece in The Athletic, actually, about their preparation. And their manager had said he hadn't been able to see any of the opponents in person yet because this was all very last minute. So for them, like obviously, they've made a decision. Look, we haven't got long to prepare. What can we prepare quite quickly? And some really, really good set-piece routines. I think that's something to watch with Portugal because obviously they're now playing two teams where they're going to be the inferior opposition. And I think they've really decided set-pieces are where we can, you know, we can trouble teams. I'd be really interested to see how they do that in their next couple of games. See, when you said, Nancy, as well, that Nils Nielsen was being very thoughtful about why he hadn't made changes... My immediate reaction, just from watching on TV, is, and I think you were hinting at this too, Tim, is the complacency had set in. I still think he thought they were going to win it. I still think he had he thought that Switzerland had the quality to win it. But what happened was some star players went absent. We wondered where they'd gone. You know, Ramona Batman at one point, I spotted that she was on the ball and thought, I haven't even thought about her for a good 15 minutes. Where's she been? Noelle Moritz as well. It was a hundredth appearance for Leah Valti, Tim, obviously with the Arsenal connection. How do you think she did? Generally pretty well. But yeah, again, in that second half, just when Portugal started to pick up those those spaces between the lines, I, I think this year, I've watched a fair bit of Switzerland over the last couple of years and, and just really, I think they really under-deliver and I watched the way they came into this tournament and they had a playoff against Czech Republic that they were big favourites for and they scraped through on penalties and they looked very, very nervous. And I think one of the issues with the Swiss team is there are quite big gaps in quality between some of the players. So you've got some real star players like Ramona Batman, like Leah Valti, and then you've got some other players who I think are just nowhere near that level and I think that's a really uncomfortable mix for them as a team. And, and I think that kind of showed in the second half. I think there were some players who were who were pretty uncomfortable because I know Leo Volti very well. And one thing she's very, very good at with Arsenal is calming things down when they need to be calmed down. But that seemed to be beyond her and several of her teammates in this game. 
Well, in a match that hinted that there might not be hardly any goals at all, considering their their qualifying campaigns and their preparations, we ended up getting treated to four. So we'll take that on this show. Uh, we've seen three groups out of four now, including two title contenders this evening. Probably one more title contender left to see, and that's France. And wow, has France been a show already? They haven't even kicked a ball. More on that next. You're listening to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast, Euro Edition. Coming up then, France take on Italy in the big game on Sunday in Rotherham. Here's what French journalist Julien Laurent had to say about the game to Jimbo on the Totally Football Show. Uh, Other key games between now and Monday include Jules France as they take on Italy. Yeah, that's right. On Sunday, uh, big game again. Italy have really improved in the last two years. Uh, there's eight Juventus players in their squad, for example, who've who've also improved and, and done really well. Obviously, winning the league ahead of Roma is going to be a really good game. And France still have those question mark over the atmosphere within the camp, the relationship between the manager Corinne Diac and the players. And we know how tough that has been. It looks better. They're happy for now, but mm. being a you know. Being so used to French camps, I know that it might not last long. So, huge game again. I know it's a cliche and Frida was saying about how important it is to win your first game. And we said about England, regardless of how you win it, you have to win it. But even more in this case, because I think if they don't win it, it could very, very quickly uh, make the whole thing derail. I see. How bad is it, Jules? Are we at the, sitting in the uh, team bus, the, the, the curtains twitching during training mm. stage? I don't know if it gets that bad. But it was really bad after 2019, of course. And, and Diag has a very um, special personality. Let's, mm. let's be honest here. That clashes a lot. She's someone who, she's, yeah, she clashes a lot with people in general. Uh, and she, I think she's quite difficult to deal with, if, especially when she's the boss and when she, she's, just, she's got so much authority and discipline is so key for her that I think at times with some players, especially the most experienced players who've been there before, who know who know how it works, it's a bit difficult to accept the fact that she got rid of the players that she didn't like and who didn't like her either, but who are still some of the best in France, like Le Sommer, like Henri. I think it's very difficult and it's very difficult to accept for the friends of those players who are still within the national team, uh, like mm. Renard and like the other Lyon players, for example. So for now, I think they, they, they sort of patched it through in the last six months or a year. But I, I, I think in that camp, you just need a little spark and then it will explode again. So let's hope that doesn't happen too early. The word there is volatile. Jules did say happy for now, but we are getting word out of the camp already before they've had their first match that that actually isn't the case. There are some some fractions already. Look, you know, what does that do for a team like France? On paper, the quality there is incredible, Tim. But are they going to rally for this coach? Or, or we could actually see a performance where they show that they're absolutely not going to play for her. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And Jules very diplomatic there, I think, about Corinne Diagra. <laughs> the discussion I was having the other day with someone actually was I've got this really unscientific kind of feeling that France might really put it together in this tournament just for the just for the reason that at some point surely they have to. Not every tournament can be a disaster or a soap opera for France. And I feel like because they've, they've always had these amazing squads and been among the favourites. 
And it feels like everyone now has just decided, do you know what, France, we've seen this too many times. We know what's going to happen. And I've just got this feeling that maybe it won't happen just once. Now everyone's given up on them. Um, but yeah, it's 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 an absolutely crazy situation. And look, I'm not going to be the diplomatic. I don't understand how Corinne Diacre is still in that job. I, I really, really don't understand it. But there we go. The talent they have, though, is absolutely unquestionable. It would not surprise me if they won this tournament at all. Do you agree, Nancy? Yeah, I don't understand why they've not made a change. And maybe that's one that we'll find out when it finally happens, why why they didn't. But also, yeah, I mean, they're the sort of team where they could absolutely storm this tournament and, and win the thing. But it's that sort of familiar problem of they need to beat themselves almost before they can beat anyone else and uh that's kind of the yeah their biggest hurdle but um it'd be really nice to see some of their players have a really good tournament because I mean for nothing else you know how how many times is a player of Wendy Reynolds quality going to play in Rotherham it's just um you know it's brilliant (laughs) so that's what it's been about hasn't it spreading it around the country to get those players in all these different stadiums one person who will be listening very attentively to how things progress with France is our very own Kate Borsay from the show she's predicted Marie Antoinette Katoto for the golden boot I can bring some nice positive news to Kate's ears as well as all the the drama and and friction Um, a stat from Mark Carey on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast said Katoto averaged more than one goal per game in each of her last five seasons at PSG scoring 10 goals in eight games for France in World Cup qualifying so the numbers back up what Kate thinks we're all going to be looking out as well um, from Italy's point of view for their top scorer Christina Girelli she spoke to Athletic Charlotte Harper for an article which is out on the website now I think your first cap was against England in Cyprus yeah so now you're coming back to England how are you feeling you've got France in your group Iceland Mm. it'll be a good game yeah I think we are uh... We are really all excited about Euro because we wait one year more. <coughs> yeah, and also like uh, the Euro male, um, mm-hmm. the Italy national team uh, left us a lot of emotion and also like enthusiasm, and they show that uh, you can uh, you can reach the the victory even if you are not the um, the favorite team to win. Um, I think, uh, well, time passed, so I don't know if I will play another Euro in my life, so the, the only things uh, the only things I want to do is just enjoy the moment and um, to don't uh, have uh, remorse yeah, regrets, mm-hmm. and, and I can't wait to, to represent my country in the Euro, so... I think we are a good team, uh, we, we improved a lot, uh, the World Cup gave us a lot of um, confidence and we have uh, France, the first game, and Iceland and Belgium, I think the first two games uh, will be really important for us. I think you're also playing in Manchester City's Academy Stadium mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I know the Iceland captain Sara Björk had some criticism of the capacity because it's only 5,000. And I spoke to the FA about the strategy and the cities that they selected and they wanted to sell out stadiums 
rather than have big like Wembley or Old Trafford with empty seats. What do you think about it? I'm agree with uh, Sara, to be honest, because uh, we arrived uh, a World Cup uh, which makes record about uh, crowd, about uh, social media, about uh, TV. It's a pity that uh, we are gonna play in a stadium a little like four thousand people because. Okay, I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm almost sure that uh, if uh, it was a stadium of uh, six, uh, seven, eight thousand, uh, maybe can be could be really full. The Iceland FA said they could have sold, you know, fifteen thousand, twenty thousand. The, yeah, the also, demand was there. Yeah, but also because Iceland, uh, they are really like uh, close to the team. Yeah, so they follow gender equality and yeah. Yeah, it's a pity, really a pity because. If you wanna um, give a big product, a big um, show, I think you also have to to give the um, the chance to play in a big uh, mystical stage. Palco. Stage. Stage. Oh, stage. 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 Echo. Yeah. So you have to uh, get to the quarterfinals out of the group. <laughs> <laughs> Christina Girelli speaking to the athletic Charlotte Harper there. In the earlier group game on Sunday, Belgium play Iceland at that Manchester Academy Stadium. Uh, what do you both think about this stadium question then that's been rearing its head? We have some smaller stadiums, but attendance records also keep being broken at this tournament. Is it an issue, Tim? I think it is a little bit, yeah. I do understand the explanation about needing some smaller stadiums because you want to fill them and things like that. I was at Germany-Denmark at Brentford on Friday night and Brentford, perfect stadium for this tournament. I've been to Rotherham before, perfect. I would say that Lee Sports Village, it's a really, really nice ground. The problem I've got with Lee and the Academy Stadium is they both have terracing behind the goals and you're not allowed to use terracing in UEFA uh, competitions. So what you've got in both these games, and I thought it looked a bit weird today at the Portugal game, is you've got no fans behind the goals. And particularly if you get like a brilliant goal or something, it's clipped up, it's shared on social media, and there's just a big banner behind the goal. I think that looks a bit strange. And that that's kind of my issue. Not only does it reduce the capacity of both places, but it, it just doesn't look great on TV. So I, I think most of the venues are really, really good. I do have a slight issue, more so with the Academy Stadium, just because it's smaller. Um, and I do think that maybe on reflection, the FA might have gone different, although I do understand that places have to apply for these for, uh, for these events as well, and, and evidently not many did. You spoke about TV coverage and how that gets affected, but uh, being there in person today for that Portugal game, Nancy, what was it like to witness in the stands? I agree with Tim. It was a bit weird when I was sat there and I think all four goals came at that end and there was, you know, no one there behind the goal, um, which, which it seemed a bit of a, ch- a shame, really. But, um, I mean, Lee felt like the right size ground, really, for this type of game. And, you know, the, the fans that were in there seemed to go a long way in, in a stadium of that size, whereas when I was at St Mary's the other night for Norway, Northern Ireland, there were more fans at that game, but because you're in a 30,000-seat stadium, it, it looked very sparse. And so it's just, I guess, striking that balance. Um, and like Tim says, you've got to have those, you know, range of clubs or, or councils or whoever apply to, to host, so that's a problem in itself. But yeah, it was a bit of a shame not to have the fans behind the goal, and 
I, I've sort of sat there thinking about it and I thought, well, I suppose it's good in some ways because maybe people are coming to this locally that maybe have never come here before or now they, they'll come and think, OK, I can get there easily enough on a bus or whatever and Lee's not necessarily the easiest place to get to because there's not a load of public transport options. But, you know, Man United women play here, so maybe that's the thinking as well with the Academy Stadium to get people into to WSL grounds. But I definitely think that maybe there's other EFL options that they could have gone to that were kind of slightly bigger or don't have the terracing and so you don't you don't have those problems. The one thing we can say is that the records keep tumbling. So tonight there was a new record set for a non-host group game at Women's Euro. That was Netherlands versus Sweden, just over 21,000 attending that one. You can add that to the opening night at Old Trafford um, where we had over 68,000 packed in. That was a record crowd. And then even just totaling it up over the last six games, total attendance now is around about 138,000, which is 5,000 off the total for all of the group games in 2017. So we know that we're strides ahead of where we were and that's the important thing. If you are going to the Manchester Academy Stadium, the source of all that controversy to see the Belgium-Iceland game, here's your guide to the city. We like to do one of these each time. This time it's England's Kira Walsh who grew up in Greater Manchester. If I say Manchester, what what pops into your head? I think for me it's just like just being fun and relaxed. I think because I've grown up in and around Manchester, I think no matter what's going on in the city, like people are always friendly, like people are always chatting, you know, in and around the city, like when you're walking, I don't know, like just a really relaxed atmosphere. And I think for me that's something that I've always grown up with and I've always enjoyed. And I think you can kind of see that in my personality as well. Um, yeah. I'm gonna fire some quick fires at you. Uh, best coffee. Drove. Best bar? Oh, I don't really go out to it. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. That old chestnut. Best bar? For a soft drink. Yeah. Soft drink. Yeah. Soft drink. <laughs> not, not a beer. You can go and get a beer, but add a soft drink as well. There's a place called yours. Yours. Oh, yeah. Alright, a must see in Manchester. <laughs> um, Central Library's quite cool. Okay. Something that, okay. you know. <laughs> Don't worry about it, you can miss it. Um, going to the Arndale, to be fair. Yeah, Old Trafford. Old Trafford. Can't say that because we're playing there. Uh, typical dish? Well, I go fish and chips, to be fair. And the best football club? Man City. Awesome, that's great. Thanks so much. Don't tell Jill that she didn't say her coffee know, shop. Right, She's not in the city centre, though. I'll let you off. OK. Great to hear from Kira there. Um, any thoughts on this Belgium-Iceland game? I feel like it's the one that's had least spoken about it. Uh, Nancy, starting with you this time. Yeah, well, I'm going, so I'm looking forward to it. Oh, great, um, great. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I think I've been tasked with chatting to fans outside the stadium to see what they feel about the, the size of the ground and stuff, so that would be interesting. I think that this is the sort of game where maybe a little bit like today, it's kind of not the showpiece of the day, but actually turns out maybe to be one of the best games of the tournament so far. You know, that kind of slightly overlooked, but we could have some carnage and lots of goals. So I'd like for that to be the case. Is Nancy's judgment clouded there, Tim, because she got this Portugal 2-2 match earlier? Um, and do you think that with Switzerland losing that 2-0 advantage, she's now in, in cloud cuckoo land because she's seen a comeback 
a comeback of all comebacks so far in this group stages and she could be asking for a bit too much here it, it could well be but I think there is something to the fact that this is similar to the the Switzerland Portugal game in that Belgium and Iceland will be looking at this they might be the only points available to them maybe that's a little bit harsh on both of them but they both know they've got to win I think again one of the really attractive things about this tournament is I don't think we're going to see a lot of you know 5-4-1 defensive play and I don't think we're going to get that tomorrow with Belgium Iceland either and both teams have got one or two top class players who I think could really pull something out of the bag we haven't had a nil-nil yet I'm not cursing this one by any by any stretch of the imagination. There will be one, though, at some point in this tournament. That's all we have time for on today's Athletic Women's Football Podcast Euros edition. Thank you very much, Nancy and Tim. Thanks as well to producer Sophie and above all yourselves for listening. Carry on doing so, please. Uh, remember, you can follow or subscribe to our channel. And when you're at the games or whether you're watching at home, just let us know. You can, you can get involved with our socials, but you can also make sure you spread the word about the show full stop I like to end on a goodbye from a different language and today it's Dutch are we ready? Tot zines Tot zines see you tomorrow The Athletic